Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very honored and pleased to have with us Richard Overy, Professor of History at the University of Exeter. Professor Overy is an internationally renowned scholar on World War II. He is a fellow of the British Academy and Royal Historical Society. Professor Overy has received numerous awards for his outstanding works, including the Hessel Tiltman Prize, the Wolfson History Prize, and the Samuel Ellett Morrison Prize. Professor Overy has authored numerous, numerous books, a short list including The Air War, 1939 to 1945, Gehring, The Iron Man, War and Economy in the Third Reich, Why the Allies Won, Russia's War, Blood Upon the Snow, 1939, Countdown to War, and much, much more. Today, we will be discussing Professor Overy's groundbreaking study, Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War. As you can see, it's a thick book, um, but it's a, uh, I enjoyed it very much, and it's extremely informative, and we'll be talking about the uh, this thesis uh, behind it. Um, and just to quote The Economist, this is a magnificent book that reflects the deep scholarship, and humane judgment of a magisterial historian. So again, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll get right to it. Um, just to start off a little bit about your background and how you became interested in European history and the world wars. Well, I had no particular background. People often think I must have a military background or something, but I don't. I grew up in the shadow of the war. Of course, my parents experienced the war and talked a lot about it. Um, but I think when I was at university, you know, among the many things I was interested in was, you know, modern Europe and the big questions raised by modern Europe. And the Second World War seemed to me to be the one that, that really required the most historical explanation, an extraordinary war on an extraordinary scale. Uh, or a level of extraordinary violence uh, and criminality. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I've always been interested in asking big questions about this. Okay. Uh, just to give us a little bit of background, what did the global world order look like before World War One? A bit of background. Well, the global order before World War I was uh, a global order very much in transition, of course. Uh, after 30, 40 years of, uh, of high-speed industrialization in much of what we now call the developed world, um, the balance of power was changing a lot. Uh, empire suddenly became very important, uh, and countries that didn't have one, like Germany or Italy, uh, decided they wanted one. Even the United States, in its war with Spain, of course, took over Spain's colonies, um, but the, 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 the most obvious thing, of course, was the rise of the United States as an exceptional economic power and the uh, you know, potential threat of Tsarist Russia. Russia, too, was a, a becoming a big power, a major industrial power. Here we can already see, before 1914, the, the superpower global order of post-1945 beginning to take shape. And, and how did World War I, the Great War, change that world order? Well, the First World War obviously changed the, uh, the, the global order in important ways. I mean, first of all, of course, it, it overthrew the uh, older dynastic empires, Turkey, Russia, Germany, the Habsburg Empire and so on, and ushered in a, a new age of nation states in Europe. Um, but what it also did, I think, was to encourage America 
to turn its back on Europe and indeed on the, on the wider world system. You know, it felt that the First World War has not really been its war. While the British and French became the most powerful imperial states uh, with huge global empires, which were enlarged by the aftermath of the First World War, taking over German colonies, uh, ter- territories of the Turkish Empire and so on. Um, so that, that in the 1920s, you had these two major powers, France and Britain, dominating the global order, dominating the League of Nations set up in 1919. Um, and you had a number of powers deeply resentful at what had happened. Most important of all, of course, was Germany, denied its colonies, stripped of its colonies. But Italy and Japan, too, felt that they deserved more because they'd been on the winning side. And all three states in the 1920s became what we might regard as revisionist states, wanting to change the global order. Um, the, the title of the book is uh, Ruins, but it is The Last Imperial War, 1931-1945. Why is it incorrect, uh, as many people would, when asked, would say World War II, World War II took place between the years 1939 and 1945? Well, I think there are great many historians now who accept that the chronology has to be cast wider. I cast it wider because... The 1930s was a violent decade of new empire building, which began in 1931 with the Japanese occupation of Manchuria, um, which ushered in, you know, a decade of Japanese expansion into East Asia and to China. Uh, then there was Mussolini setting up his Mediterranean empire and uh, uh, attacking and conquering Ethiopia and East Africa. And then, of course, Germany under Hitler, beginning to flex its muscles and finally waging war in 1939. So I argue that there's a lot of background of violence already in the wave of new empire building. And 1945 is not a very satisfactory end either, because there was a great deal of violence uh, after 1945 with the unraveling of the older empires. Um, but I think you know, my publisher really wanted an end date that people could identify with. Uh, but the book itself goes on to the 1960s. So would it be fair to perhaps say that instead of 1931 to 1945, okay, the end date, fine, that it would be from 1914 to 1945, two world wars, but really one major conflict? Well, it's quite fashionable, I think, to talk about a 30 years war starting in 1940 and ending in 1945. I think my book would would argue that clearly there is a strong link between the First World War and its outcome and the Second World War, and I don't don't deny that. Uh, But I I see it much more as a a crisis of empire uh, or a desire for empire building, which was a byproduct of the the conflict of 1914-1918. Many historians, I think, tend to see the outbreak of the Second World War as a result of Versailles, the uh, shifting balance of power in Europe uh, between 1918 and 1939. So, you know, we're back to a rerun of the First World War. And although there's an element of that, I'm much more persuaded that really this imperial framework is what explains uh, the development of the 1920s of of powerful national resentments, the emergence of a new wave of empire building in the 1930s, and then the desire of Britain and France, and eventually the Soviet Union and the United States, to reverse that new wave of empire building, uh, which went on until the 1960s, when all empires were dismantled. 
Um, you, you, you write that World War II was a global event. How, how does that differ from calling it a world war as opposed to global? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, people talk about World War, the First World War, but they focus a great deal on the Western Front and occasionally talk about uh, the war in Russia. Um, it's a global war because, uh, well, I think for two reasons. First of all, it simply is geographically global. It's a war which, you know, involves the Aleutian Islands of the North Pacific, Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, the Caribbean, the Falkland Islands, um, uh, and, of course, the, the you know, conventional uh, fields of conflict in Europe and, and Asia. It is a genuinely global war, but it's a global war, too, because of the connections, the connections between the New World and Europe. Uh, the connections between uh, Britain and the, so- and the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, and perhaps, you know, something often overlooked, the connection between the Axis powers. They're thinking, too, about what the new order would look like. Their cooperation, which historians have been to talk more about than they did before. So in that sense, you know, there's a global reach for both of these war efforts, uh, very different from the more restricted war in the Middle East and Europe. Uh, during the First World War. What were, what were the major empires? You obviously mentioned it, Britain and France. What was the scope of the major empires before World War II? Before World War II, a very large part of the, of the globe was um, made up of, of empires. The British Empire and the French Empire, of course, were by far the largest, around about 40% actually of the, uh, uh, the global land area. Uh, but there was also a Belgian Empire. Belgian Congo was, you know, a, 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 a huge addition to a, a very small European territory. The Dutch Empire was important too. The Dutch had interest in the Caribbean, Latin America, and of course Indonesia, which was a, again a very large area, um, much larger than the, the European Netherlands. Um, then there was the Italian Empire, of course, which um, had been born before 1914, and which Mussolini was uh, committed to expanding as, as far as possible. Uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. So the, this is a world, you know, which is still dominated by a really rather a small number of very large territorial empires. And, and the British and French empires included, just to give our listeners a little overview, included what countries that we know of today? Well, the British Empire was divided in two. There were the white dominions, the settler dominions, um, which were called part of the British Empire, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and then South Africa, which counted as a white dominion, even though it was, in fact, a majority black. Um, and then there was India, which was a kind of hybrid um, state. It was a kind of federation uh, ruled by the British, but not exactly a colony. But then there were lots of, uh, of colonial areas and protectorates uh, under direct British rule. Uh, so the British Empire was a, was a, a rather muddled uh, empire in, in institutional terms. The French Empire uh, made up, of course, uh, Vietnam, Indochina and Southeast Asia, a uh, very large part of Western and West, uh, West Africa and uh, Saharan Africa. Algeria, of course, um, a, a whole string of islands in the Caribbean and islands in the Pacific. Uh, between them, as I said, it's a, it's a very large chunk of the world. 
And what were the main causes for the end of the demise of 20th century empires? Well, one obvious cause was the Second World War. Uh, The Second World War uh, was fought in the end to prevent German, Japanese and Italian expansion. And that's exactly what it did. All three of those empires were destroyed entirely by war. And no effort was made to uh, revive imperialism in any of those countries. Uh, The war also accelerated the collapse of the other empires because the the defeat of the British and the French in Southeast Asia, for example, um, persuaded most imperial peoples that, you know, the time had come for Britain and France to give up. Uh, They should be liberated as well. They deserve nationhood if European states deserve nationhood. And if the war was a war for democracy and uh, self-determination, well, they should have a share of that as well. So it was, a, if you like, a kind of you know, moral political crisis for the old empires post-1945, uh, which led them to basically abandon empire by the early 1960s. It was no longer sustainable. And that, that, that collapse, I think, uh, owed a great deal to the changes brought about by the Second World War. Would would the British Empire, in your opinion, have ended without World War II? Was it just an accelerator? Were there other factors involved? And specifically, Winston Churchill, who was an advocate of the empire, was he anti-empire post-World War II? Well, he certainly wasn't. Uh, He deeply regretted the passing of the British Empire. Um, But... um, uh, uh, as one as one might uh, as one might expect uh, um, but um, uh, uh, the British Empire would almost certainly have gone on from the 1940s but I think it was pretty much doomed uh, you know the forces that are unleashed even before the second world war of nationalism you know political liberalism and so on you know that that you know subject peoples deserve these too they shouldn't just be confined to america and the european states and i think that that was a process probably unstoppable but it was certainly accelerated by the second world war you know after the second world war the legitimacy of old-fashioned territorial empires and subject peoples have been shown to be bankrupt. That uh, if you had to defeat Britain, France and Italy and stop them doing it, well, what justified you continuing to do it? How do you uh, specifically view the Pacific theater, the American-Japanese Pacific War in the whole context of the demise of empires? The, the war between Japan and the United States uh, is a well, it's one which is often in in general history of the war played down. Not enough attention is paid to it. I mean, there was a long term rivalry between Japan and the United States in the Pacific. I know for a long time the Japanese have been thinking, what would it be like when we go to war with America? I mean, a long time, you know, from the um, uh, end of the First World War. And the United States too, a long, long uh, period during which. Japan was perceived to be a potential threat. That goes back even before the First World War. So there's a there's a background, if you like, to that conflict, which is independent of the you know the, the rise of Japanese imperialism. 
but Japanese imperialism, you know, clearly in the end is a challenge to America's position in the Pacific. You know, it's a challenge to American interests. It's a challenge to America's principle of, you know, a, a free trade and, and, you know, free use of the oceans and so on and so on. So a, a clash, I think, was almost inevitable. Um, the, the, the difference was the, the, you know, the Japanese in, in uh, government in, in Tokyo, because it, it desperately wanted an empire and it wanted an empire which the United States did not intervene. Um, but they could see that the difficulty of building an empire like that without, you know, at some point having to confront the United States, you know, and that's the Pacific War. The Pacific War is to protect the empire, to build a, a, a periphery which the Americans would either lack the will or the means to be able to penetrate. And that's the Pacific War. And the Japanese misjudged it entirely. Roosevelt, was strongly opposed to the new wave of imperialism, whether it was Mussolini or Hitler or the Japanese. Uh, and the, and he made, and he made every effort in the Pacific to try and limit what the Japanese, you know, contain the Japanese. Um, it couldn't be done, but then America united to destroy the Japanese empire, which they did, of course, you know, fundamentally. Well, why couldn't the Japanese have attempted to create a Pacific empire? and not having attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, or at least waited until they consolidated an empire in the Pacific. Yeah, Pearl Harbor, I mean, most historians don't agree that Pearl Harbor is in some way a strategic mistake. Uh, didn't achieve anything very much in, in uh, military terms, and it, it succeeded in, in uniting the American public, which was deeply divided on the issue of going to war. Um, but, you know, if they'd not attacked Pearl Harbor, but it seized the resources of Malaya uh, and Indonesia, I, I think that would have almost certainly pushed Roosevelt to declare war against the Japanese. Um, I mean, he's, he's, you know, almost at a point of, of, of war with the sanctions and so on. Um, but if the Japanese carried on into Southeast Asia, threatened the Philippines and Australia, uh, I find it difficult to, to see how Roosevelt could have resisted the pressure for war. How would you define the United States empire as you take a view of the United States, you know, the history of the United States and international relations? Is the United States an imperialistic country? Is it an empire? Is it a different kind of empire than the British, French classical empire? Well, I've been asked this question a lot, obviously, because uh, the idea of American empire, just like the idea of Soviet empire, is an is a extremely popular idea among historians and political scientists. Uh, I've argued in the book that, you know, neither the United States nor the Soviet Union are empires in the sense in which I'm using it to describe those European territorial empires, which dated back actually four or five hundred years of, of global expansion from Europe. Um, the United States and the Soviet Union are hegemonic powers. They dominated other powers and they did, did so deliberately, either through economic pressure or because of, you know, military threat. But they were not territorial empires in the sense in which, you know, the Japanese, the Germans and the Italians wanted a territorial empire. Indeed, the United States is often we call an empire of bases, which I suppose is quite a good way of describing it, that there are, you know, military bases all over the world. Uh, and the Soviet Union, of course, was the dominant uh, force in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, but, you know, this was not territorial empire. The, 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 
establishment of a a sense of racial superiority over subject peoples, which had characterized the spread of empire for the previous two or three centuries. Where does Nazi Germany fit into this this whole picture? Would you say that it's a historical aberration, an evil historical aberration, or in the framework of empires, a usual and a ordinary historical imperialistic country or attempt? Well, well, we know there's nothing ordinary about the Third Reich. Um, But, uh, you know, on the other hand, it is important to see that what Hitler wants to do in the 1930s is is what other imperial powers have done. And and indeed, those are his models. He's often referring to, you know, American expansion across the continent. He's talking to Britain's rule in India and so on. Uh, He's talking about, you know, the way in which empire, you know, basically defines a nation. You're a strong nation if you have an empire. So in that sense, you know, Hitler is very much in the framework of late 19th century imperialism. That's really where his, you know, his mind mindset is. But it's a new radical imperialism, of course. It's designed to build a huge economic bloc dominated by Germany. It's designed to to create, a, a, you know, a racial empire, which the Germans are not just the superior race, uh, but they're eliminating other races, of course, you know, principally the Jews, but also Slavs, Roma, and so on, uh, to make this a kind of you know, Germanic paradise, if you like. Uh, and in that sense, uh, Hitler's imperialism is impatient, radical, um, uh, and dangerous. Uh, it, it's a, it, it's within that imperial framework, but it's a, you know a different kind of empire.